And welcome back to the Field Guide to Body Language podcast. My name is Laurel. I am a movement analyst and a body language nerd and also your host. Today, we are continuing on in our endeavor to understand the greatest and most complex tool for nonverbal communication, our body. Um, In the last episode, we talked about the patterns of total body connectivity, especially the first and most foundational connection, breath. On the docket, for today are core distal and head tail connections. The core distal connection is the first connection built into our neuromuscular system after breath. And if you'll remember from the last episode, we're stacking these connections like a pyramid with breath at the bottom. So breath supports the core distal connection and breath and core distal support the head tail connection. The core distal connection helps us to articulate all six of our distal ends, hands, feet, and then both ends of our spine, our head and our tailbone. And it connects all those ends into the center of our body so that we can support the movement of our limbs with our core and allow the movement of our limbs to influence the movement of the rest of our body. This connection is most easily seen in Thomas Meyer's approach to anatomy in anatomy trains. The reason why I love Meyer's approach to anatomy so much is that his work centers around the connective tissue, the fascia. He doesn't address the muscles as individual entities per se. Um, In fact, he frequently refers to the muscles in the body as one muscle in 600 pockets of fascia, as opposed to 600 separate muscles. No muscle works independently because everything is connected and intertwined. The most comprehensive way to understand how the muscles work isn't in my opinion, kinesiology. It's the anatomy trains theory. So content warning, um, I'm going to talk about cadavers and dissections for a minute or two. So if you're squeamish, uh, tune out for a couple minutes. The classical approach to anatomy is to take the body apart in pieces. The connective tissue is like stripped away and ignored in favor of seeing the defined body of each of the muscles. However, the anatomy trains approach looks for strategically connected lines of fascia and muscle in the body. So when Myers did his cadaver dissections, rather than cutting away the connective tissue to see the structures underneath, he peeled it off. And when he peeled it off, it brought strategic lines of muscle with it. So, you know, when you break off the end of a stick of celery or you take a bite of a celery stick and there are those like strings running the length of the stock, that's kind of how Myers addresses connective tissue. It's possible to cut into connective tissue or chop celery and create well-defined pieces, or you can peel and reveal where the strong lines of connection run through the whole body. I am done talking about cadavers now. One would expect that if we are developmentally connected in a core to distal manner, that there would be a line of connective tissue, a line of fascia to reflect that connection. And there is, well, technically there are several. Let's start with the core and work our way out. Core strength is a buzzword right now. Everyone wants to work on their core strength and those who are serious about it will do endless ab exercises in their endeavor, which I admire. I really do, but they're barking up the wrong tree. The core of the human body at its most basic um, muscular level, as it's 
popularly understood, we'll say, would consist of the transverse abdominis, diaphragm, the pelvic floor, and a group of tiny back muscles. Your six-pack muscles aren't even invited to that party, but the deepest layer of your abdominal wall, the transverse abdominis is. Your, quote, abs are more than just the six-pack muscles. They also include the oblique muscles, which wrap around your torso, and the transverse abdominis, which wraps all the way around the middle of you. And it's the deepest layer of abdominal muscles. The obliques and the six-pack muscles create movement. The transverse abdominis tenses to create pressure and stability in the core. I think we all probably know where the pelvic floor is, your intestines and your bladder rest on top of it. And your diaphragm is the parachute-like muscle that sits above your stomach and under your lungs. And that's that quartet of muscles is the most basic understanding of the core. Um, if you go to a good physical therapist or a good fitness instructor to quote, develop core strength, they will develop all of these muscles. They know that all of those muscles will need attention, but let's dive a little deeper because that quartet of muscles was birthed out of a classical understanding of anatomy. And we're looking just beyond the muscles to connections. Chapter nine of Anatomy Trains details what Thomas Myers has termed the deep front line. This group of muscles that are all in the same line of connective tissue includes the pelvic floor, the diaphragm, the transverse abdominis, like we talked about. And then instead of including those little tiny back muscles, it includes the psoas, which is deeper than the tiny back muscles. Long story, I won't bore you with the muscle minutia, but you should definitely know that the psoas connects the torso to the legs. And remember, we're looking for connections from the core out to the distal ends. So a muscle that runs from the torso out to a limb like that is a good sign. Now, the end of the psoas is right at the top of the thigh bone, but if you keep peeling the layer of connective tissue that the psoas lives in, it will go all the way down through your inner thigh, through the back of the knee, into the deep calf, and then into the arch of the foot. Boom, distal ends, fascially accomplished. But we're not done yet. The deep front line also connects into the tip of the tailbone, which is another distal end, and runs up the body, includes the muscles and connective tissue in the throat and head, yet another distal end. But what about the arms and hands, you say? Myers has us covered there too. His theory accounts for separate but connected lines that run from this deep front line that we've been talking about out into each hand. I'm going to stop there and spare you the rest of the anatomy because I think you all probably get the picture. The connections from the core of the body to the distal ends are indeed anatomically present. Let's remember that these are developmental patterns, so they will show up in different ways as babies grow and move. What does it look like when a baby starts to develop the core distal pattern? Really, this is going to be reflected in any movement that involves the center of the body and a hand, a foot, the head, or the bum. Think about this. When you are holding a small baby, you always keep a hand behind their head because until they figure out how to hold their head up successfully, they're likely to lift it up and then just toss it backwards. They're trying to figure out how to hold their head up, but the neuromuscular pattern and the muscle memory just aren't there yet. That lifting of the head and then leaning back is one of the signs of the beginning of the development of the core distal connection. 
Another sign is when they bury their head into your chest, not in a, I'm looking for food way. This is more like they're ramming their head into you. Um, in adults, this is the muscular activation of vomiting. Sorry. Um, it's ab work with follow through muscle activation in the neck and head, just, just like vomiting. The other movement that babies start doing as they build the neuromuscular cordistal connection is pressing their hands and feet into the embrace of their caregiver or onto the floor during tummy time. Like when they press their hands down and lift their head up. Needless to say, for most of us, this connection was developed a long time ago and is easy to take for granted. But when it goes awry, we notice. If your arm isn't properly connected to the support of your core, you'll find out just how persnickety your rotator cuff can be. If your head isn't connected onto your center, neck injuries and chronic headaches aren't far off. Disconnection underlies all chronic injuries. Like any machine, if the body isn't connected the way it should be, it starts to break down. There's an interesting story that Myers relates in his book. I'm just going to read a little section to you. This is on page 239 of the third edition of Anatomy Trains. The current edition is the fourth edition. I have it. I haven't read it yet, though. Okay, I digress. Quote, the story goes that Feldenkrais sat down to dinner next to the anthropologist extraordinaire, Margaret Mead. Mead said, oh, yes, Feldenkrais. You're the movement man. I have a question that I've been meaning to ask you. Why can't the Balinese men learn to hop? They are good dancers and otherwise coordinated, but I cannot teach them to hop from one leg to the other. It sounds as if they are missing a stage of creeping, mused Feldenkrais. Of course, said Mead, smacking her forehead. The Balinese don't let their babies touch the ground for the first rice year, which is seven months. So they never get to creep on their bellies, end quote. So that's an example where actually part of the connection was never built. And because that connection wasn't built, there are effects later on in life. Now, there is more to cordistal connectivity than just connecting your arms and legs into their proper mechanisms of support. A lot more. Your core is more than just the fascia and muscles in the deep front line. It also reflects the core of you as a living, breathing, feeling human. You can think about it like your core self. And your distal ends, beyond just the physical hands and feet, represent things that may be quite functional, but aren't necessarily essential for your psychological well-being. Let's take a moment to visualize this. Grab a pen and paper, draw a large circle in the paper, and put a dot in the middle of the circle. Take a few moments and consider what is at the core of who you are. Is it a personality trait? Is it honesty, love, kindness, courage, or something you do or create, art or music? My daughter said something brilliant, per usual. Uh, when I asked her how she knew what was part of her core self, she said, quote, it's the things that if you don't do them, you feel anxious or tense. You could do the things that are part of your core self limitlessly, end quote. No matter what you feel is at the core of your being, write it in the center of the big circle near the dot. It can be as many things as you want, but they must be things that if you lost, you feel like you'd lost a part of yourself. Now for the distal ends. What is a part of your life that isn't a part of the core of who you are as a person, work, obligations, social media, 
write as many as you please around the edge of the circle. Once you've finished, have a look at your little self-portrait and take a minute to consider how these things are all connected. Perhaps honesty is at the core of your being and spending time with friends is a distal end at the perimeter of the circle. It feels good to get together with friends and you know you can be honest and open with them. You're using a distal end, hanging out with your friends, to connect into who you are as a person, which is honest. But what if one of those friends asked you to lie for them? You'd feel sick to your stomach and it would change the relationship between you and your friend, but also between your core self and your distal end to one of dysfunction and pain. These two things are no longer connected in a healthy way, and now the relationship is sour. Can it be repaired? Of course, but there's pain there. The same thing can happen in your physical body. I will use myself as an example. Um, I was a dancer for a long time, and during one rehearsal, I fell out of a leap and I sprained my right ankle. It was a really bad sprain. To this day, I have no idea how I danced through it. When I sprained my ankle and then decided to dance through the pain, not a great plan, I tensed up the whole connection from my right foot up through my right leg and into my right hip. I never went to physical therapy. I just let that dysfunctional pattern between my injured ankle and my tight right side live in my body. Because I let that dysfunctional pattern stay, I continued to sprain my ankle over and over and over again. The same thing could happen in the earlier example. If your friend asked you to be dishonest and you thought, ah, just this once, you'd be untrue to yourself. And if you didn't speak up about not being comfortable with dishonesty, your friend might continue to ask you to lie for them. And that would permanently damage your relationship. So let's take those two examples and talk about how they might influence body language. I can tell you right now that to this day, when I get anxious about something, I put all my tension in my right side. I guarantee it's visible. Another thing that happens in my body when I'm anxious or in pain is that my head shifts forward. Now let's just stop and recap here a little, because I know this is a big concept. There was a lack of strength in my body and I got physically injured. I injured a distal end and then I tensed my body all the way back up to my core. Because the whole body is connected, that injury had ripple effects. When I'm stressed, I lean to the right into my tight side and the tightness in my core, not good tightness, pulls my head forward and I'm kind of stuck there. Now let's consider the standard approach to body language of decoding positions. If I'm leaning to the right, it could mean I like the person on my right. Ooh la la. If my head is forward, it's because I'm very invested in what I'm doing. Is that actually what's happening? No. There's a patterning issue in my body that leaves me tight on my right side and I'm super stressed and that's pulling my head forward. If we just decode positions, we're left with a grossly incomplete picture. But if y'all watched me walk, you'd see the unevenness in my body is consistent. It's not a reaction to someone standing next to me or something I'm interested in. It's just a baseline tightness in my body. And this is why it's so important to have a basic understanding of the human body. If you understand your tools and the tools of those around you, you'll really be able to see what you're looking at in someone's body language. Now, if you watch me walk and I was not leaning to the right, but then I sat down 
next to someone and actively leaned into them, then maybe you could assume there was some sort of a relationship there. But the key is the movement, not the position. Okay, now let's go back to the earlier example of the person who feels that honesty is a part of their core self and their friend just asked them to lie. You'll definitely see a reaction in the body unless that person is a great actor, but most likely it will be visible in a change of the effort elements, which we won't get into today, but you can go back to episode three, um, body language and emotions if you want to revisit that or Or if you'd like to support me on Patreon, you'll have access to the intro to body language video where I explain the effort elements. The next connection we're going to talk about today is the head tail connection. This connection goes from your head through your spine to your tailbone. Developmentally, if you happen to have a child in your life, you will notice that after babies spend some time on their tummy and develop the strength in the muscles of their back with the support of the floor, uh, they start to push themselves onto their hands and knees and then into a sitting position. And that's the landmark moment for the development of this head tail connection. Sitting up is the first iteration. And then as we grow more, uh, the stronger and more expressive we get. Being able to use the spine in a coordinated way allows for the spine to be able to be both functional and expressive. It presents itself in many shapes and it changes shapes to help express our emotions. In episode six of the podcast, we talked about the anatomy of the spine and how the emotions are expressed in our spine. So I'm not going over that again here, but if you're curious about that, episode six is where to find it. Um, Today, I want to cover a couple of other anatomical considerations. First, spines should be curvy. There are four spines. There are four spines in a healthy spine. That's right, there are. There are four curves in a healthy spine. The back of the neck and the lower back curve forward, and the back of the rib cage and the bum curve backwards. Bodies have different degrees of spinal curvature, and these curves are built in for flexibility and shock absorption. They're there by design, and everybody is slightly different. So just because someone has a more curvy low back than another person, we can't assume that they're trying to be seductive. It might just be their anatomy. Second, If there's a holding pattern in one part of the spine, another part of the body will compensate. And you'll see those effects ripple out in the movement of the body. Peggy Hackney, the brilliant Peggy Hackney, puts it this way, quote, all patterns of holding cut down on the fluid nature of the movement and hence the possibilities that are available at any one moment, end quote. Another thing to consider in regards to holding patterns is that the part of the body that is holding tension isn't fully available for effort modulations. So we already talked about how emotions are expressed in our movements in the form of the effort elements. Those are flow, space, weight, and time. But if there's tension in a part of the body, it isn't available to express emotion. It's stuck. It's not even stuck in bound flow. Bound flow is a choice. Stuckness is just stuck. Here's an example. Um, several of my clients before they started seeing me have needed spinal fusions, which means that they can't move that particular part of their spine. And since there isn't any movement available in the fused portion of the spine, another portion of the spine will compensate for it. Now that doesn't mean that emotions aren't expressed. They just show up somewhere else in the body, which is another reason why it's so important to look at the whole body. Third, bodies will always write themselves forward and vertical. 
This is a body-wide system of compensation patterns, but today we're just going to center the discussion on the spine. Now, what do I mean by bodies will quote, write themselves? When there is a tightness in a part of the body, we all have it. Um, it can manifest itself as a twist or a shift or a tilt in one part of the spine. And when that happens, another part of the spine will twist, shift, or tilt in the opposite direction to bring the head back upright to a vertical like and forward facing position. So if the lower spine, the lumbar spine is rotated to the left, we'll say, then the thoracic spine, the part of the spine that is attached to your rib cage will twist to the right so that your head is facing forward again. If your lumbar spine is tilted to the right, then your thoracic spine, or maybe even your cervical spine, which is the um, part of your spine that is essentially your neck, um, will tilt to the left again to bring your head back to an upright and vertical position. The connection of the head and the spine is evident in multiple lines of the anatomy trains and all of the distal ends, again, hands, feet, head, and tail are connected from the spine into the core. Needless to say, the spine gets a lot of feedback from multiple sources of input. And because the spine has so many small bones, there's a lot of room for tiny adjustments. The last thing that I want to draw your attention to today is that things in the body can get tangled. There's an interesting breakdown of the core distal pattern that is very common and very influential when we're looking at body language. What happens is that the hands and the shoulders want to shove themselves up into the neck instead of being connected down into the core. And that in turn cuts the head tail connection in half. There is a lot of neck muscle gripping that ensues and that muddies the waters a lot when you're trying to consider the expressions of the head and neck and arms. Once again, though, if you look at the whole body and how the whole body moves, you'll be able to see that someone's neck is tense as a baseline for their movement, as opposed to just being part of a specific movement interaction or a specific expression. Incidentally, the stuck neck phenomena is the reason why people think that shoving their shoulders down away from their ears is the answer to all their postural woes. But, and if you're a regular listener, you already know this, the answer is never a position. Shoving the shoulders down will not help, nor is it functional. What needs to happen is that the core distal pattern needs to be reestablished. It's all about connection. That's all I have for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining me. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review or supporting me on Patreon. If you have any questions, you can DM me on Instagram. I am at Laurel Foley, L-A-U-R-E-L. I know how to spell my name. Let's try that again. Um, you can DM me on Instagram. I am at Laurel Foley, L-A-U-R-E-L-F-O-L-E-Y. Um, or you can email me at laurel at fieldguidebodylanguage.com. Bye, friends. Bye, friends.